Well, we continue our series on God's kingdom. We've had a few now. We've had four already, haven't we? Uh, today, I want to talk on something that's called the promise of the kingdom. And what I mean is, is this. Talking about God's kingdom, a phrase that keeps popping up when you read books, when you talk about it, and actually we've been mentioning it while we've been preaching, is the phrase now and not yet. God's kingdom is now and it's not yet. What does that mean? Is it now? Yes. But it isn't. But is it not yet? Yes. But it isn't. It's both and neither. And, and what does this mean? What is it? We keep throwing this phrase out there and it all sounds clever and we cannot always quite get our head around that. There's a tension, a necessary tension between now and not yet. And I want to talk about that a little bit more today. Past few weeks we've been talking about a lot of the now, haven't we? Believing the kingdom, proclaiming the kingdom. What is God's kingdom now? Jesus said it's here. It's not just near, it's now here. So that's now, isn't it? But what about this not yet business? What does that really mean? And I want to dwell today a little bit more on the not yet, the promises to come. I've said it before, I'm going to say it again, a little reminder. The Old Testament is full of God's promises. The New Testament is full of all those promises coming true. We've seen a lot of those, particularly in Jesus. A lot of those promises have been revealed, have come true. There's still a few we've yet to see, aren't there? And that that is the end times, that is the not yet that we look forward to. We've just got to be careful our attitude to the not yet isn't dismissive or all-consuming. Again, there's a tension, a balance we need to keep in check. And, for example, where are we headed? Heaven? Yes and no. If we die now before Jesus comes, we'll be with him in paradise. That's what he says to the thief on the cross, doesn't he? But one day he'll come and he'll make all, all things new. We'll be living on a new earth, not just in heaven. We won't be sitting on clouds with harps. Thank goodness. I like metal music. But there'll be some great rock metal in heaven and, and on, on the new earth, I'm sure. Uh, you will look delighted at that. But there will be a new earth and a new heaven. And God won't be in heaven. He'll be with his people on the new earth. We'll talk about that in a bit. But then that can actually give us a bit of an attitude. We think, oh, there's sin and there's sickness and there's suffering. And we, we've got a bit of the now, but we haven't got much of it. We've got mostly not yet. And I just want it to be over. I want, I've had enough of this. Jesus come quickly, we say a lot, don't we? Particularly when X Factor's on. But we, can, <laughs> but we can have this attitude. We can just hold on tight until it's over, can't we? It's a, it's a danger. It's actually a danger. It's not great. And I'm glad David shared about this Olympic race just now. That's striving to win. We don't need to strive anymore. In Christ, we've won. And actually, if you're looking at my notes, there's a story, from a true story, from the Winter Olympics of a guy called Franz Klammer. Check this guy out on YouTube. He's, he's a legend. He's a downhill skier. He's Austrian. Downhill skier. And in 1976, Winter Olympics at Innsbruck, he had to get the fastest time on this final run, downhill skiing run of his, to get the gold medal. He had to give it everything. This guy, it's, it's, seriously, check it out on YouTube. It's breathless. You can't breathe while you're watching him. The way he launches himself off this, whatever you call it, the launch pad, and he goes gunning down this, down this hill, and all the time, he's, just, he's right on the edge. He's just, giving it, he's just letting himself fly. There's about four or five times he nearly falls over. I'm, 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 I've no idea why he doesn't. He's permanently on the edge. Any moment he's going to go, he's going to tumble. I swear, half the time going down the slope, he's on one leg. He is. He's just like, oh, God, get the other one down. All like this. And eventually, he pummels down the end. He makes it to the far end. And not only does he get the fastest time, not only does he win the gold medal, he breaks the world record. <laughs> it's remarkable. The bloke's an absolute legend. And straight after this, they interviewed him. And they said, what was going through your mind? 
He said, I just wanted to get to the end as quick as possible. And then he goes, I thought I was going to die. <laughs> I bet you did. Watch it. Seriously, check it out. It's brilliant. But the trouble is, that can be our attitude. To watch him, he is frantic. He is desperate. He wants to get to the end as quick as possible. Get this over. That could be our attitude with the now and the not yet. I've had enough of this. And this does wear us down. Life is not easy. Jesus never promised us an easy life. And this world is broken. It's hard sometimes. But we've got to be careful when we hear the promises of what's to come, not to seize that and think, I just want to get there as quick as possible. It's a good desire in some ways because it's something amazing and we just want to be with Jesus. I get that. But we've got to be careful that like Franz Klemmer, we miss the nuance of the journey. We miss the confidence of the journey. He was given everything to get a gold medal that wasn't guaranteed until he got there. In Jesus, the gold medal is yours now. And you can relax. You can enjoy the journey knowing he's got your back. Big difference, isn't there? Which is why we're going to spend some time in the book of Revelation today. And Revelation is an interesting book. Who's ever read Revelation all the way through? Few hands, not many. Some. Who reads it regularly? Fred. Yep. Margaret. I'll be, be careful about what I say next. Because sometimes we can assume Revelation is held in high esteem by the nutters. Not these two. And ignored by the rest of us. Because we don't get it. It's full of these weird pictures. I've no idea what's going on. What's this dragon and the beast and the false prophet? And he makes this thing that talks. And what's going on? No idea. So we just ignore it and get back to the Gospels and the Psalms, don't we? It's a danger. Because actually, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking and training. All scripture, including the book of Revelation. So why is it in there? Does it just give us these wafty images of which we'll never understand just to give us encouragement for the future and therefore can we just get there really quickly because I want the good bits? It has relevance to now. It has relevance to now. And so we're going to look at a bit of that. Um, obviously it's a big book, 22 chapters. We're not going to get through it all today. I'm just going to do a few little snapshots and um, just better explain in case you're not familiar with the book. It's written by Jesus' best friend on this planet, John. The Apostle John, when he was in exile on the island of Patmos, late part of the, very late part of the first century, he sees Jesus. This great vision while he was in the spirit. He sees Jesus and Jesus tells him to write letters to the churches and then he gives him a revelation, an unveiling of the end times of what's to come. And it actually, it actually covers all of history, particularly even in chapter 12. You see the story about the woman and a baby and the dragon trying to destroy her baby. And actually, that, is, that particular story starts from before Genesis, carries on all the way through the Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus arrives, and then since then as well. There's a lot of history in Revelation. It's not, not just about then. It's also about back there and now as well. And it's fascinating. But we've got to be very, very careful that we don't get caught up in trying to unpack it like a spiritual sudoku, trying to pick this puzzle box apart. We spend our time looking at times and dates. and That's not what it's about. Revelation is not about specific times, dates, conspiracy theories, political shenanigans, 9-11 and Chernobyl. It's about Jesus. Never, never forget it's all about Jesus. But then that is not a reason to ignore it and think, it's about Jesus, he's got it under control, I don't need to read it. Actually, there's still a lot to be learned from it, as we'll find out in a minute. A lot of encouragement for the now. But what I will say, before we look at that, I just want to, be, just want to mention about the things we're not sure of. 
There was a lot of things in the book of Revelation and elsewhere tied in from uh, Jesus' sayings in the Gospels and Isaiah and so on, 1 Thessalonians, etc. We can time in, get a picture of the end times. There was a lot of stuff we can be absolutely certain will happen in a certain way, which is the stuff we're going to look at in a minute. But there are a few other things we can't be certain of. We've got to be careful how we interpret, and we won't always agree together as well. For example, I mean, there's some weird stuff in there. There's the two witnesses and the four beasts and the four riders and the seven bowls. And what's all this about? Seven plagues. And it's fascinating. We can pick it apart. We can start to, it's good to talk about. These are things we should talk about. That's fine. As long as they don't become the primary focus. It's all about Jesus. Don't forget that. It's all about Jesus. But there are some things in there that some people are actually vehemently assured of. when actually they shouldn't be because we can't say for sure. For example... We talk about the rapture. When the Bible talks about God's people being swept up, he comes for us and we get swept up. And some believe that will be just when the last judgment happens, we get swept up to him. Others believe it will be before that when all his church disappears and leaves everyone else behind. Who's heard about the Left Behind series? It's a new film coming with Nicolas Cage as the pilot. Very exciting. I won't be watching it. Uh, And it's about the rapture, about God's people being swept up. You see a pair of smoking wellies left behind. Where's it gone? Believers will be swept up and unbelievers be left behind. I think we've got to be careful because some passages that refer to that are actually referring to unbelievers being taken away and believers being left behind. We've got to be very, very careful about that harvest picture. Got to be very, very careful. But also, it might happen, it might not like that. What to be careful of is being so definite that that will happen and when it will happen. There is also, um, there is also a thousand years known as millennium when Christ's reign on the planet will be glorious and amazing and lions will sleep with lambs and so on. We're not quite sure when that will happen, how it will happen. Is it actually meaning now? Is it meaning something that will come in later? Would it be before or after the rapture? We don't know. Some people think they do. There's something we can't be certain of. We just need to be very, very careful. There's also the seven years tribulation when things will get really dire and potentially an actual specific person, an antichrist, rather than one of the antichrists. One person will reveal themselves and everything will get horrible. Persecution will really kick off, even more so than we see today. And that's been horrendous this week in Iraq again, isn't it? But we've got to be careful about our understanding of what that is, when it happens, watch all of these events uh, and seasons happen in sequence. We've got to be careful. They're called premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, they're pre-post and A, and many people think all of it is pre-post Eros. Ah, see what I did there? It's good, isn't it? We've just got to be careful. Just got to be careful. That's fine. Just research it. Work out what you think it means. Look at other aspects of the Bible. Understand it in context of the rest of the Bible. But we need to be, un- need to be so careful that all of them lead to judgment. All of them lead to Christ coming again. All of them lead to Jesus winning because he's already won and we have no control over these events what order they happen in or whether they happen at all we need to keep coming back to the primary focus it's about Jesus, he wins what does is, what is it bear relevance to now? even 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 very first verse says uh, now concerning the times and the seasons brothers you have no need to have anything written to you for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night Even back then, he was saying, don't worry about the specific details, just understand the principles. Even Jesus, while he was on this planet, didn't know when Judgment Day would come. He probably does now. 
sitting at the Father's right hand. I'm sure the Father's whispered it to him. But while he was here, he says, even I don't know when it's going to happen. If he didn't know, then we ain't going to know. And it doesn't matter. Father does. I'll leave it there. I don't want to go into too much detail on that. It just becomes a lecture, an academic lecture, doesn't it? But what can we be certain of? Here's the exciting stuff. This is what I love. I've spent the past couple of months in the book of Revelation. I've, I've studied it. I've read it before. I've never really immersed myself in it. I love it now. It's brilliant. We've got to be careful that the whole book isn't strictly chronological. This happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. Actually, a lot of the passages overlap each other. And it becomes sections that are quite, in many ways, are parallel to each other. And they're just different perspectives of looking at the same events, but from a different angle each time. But what can we be sure of? Revelation chapter 12. It's the very last book of the Bible, if you don't know your Bible too well. And then chapter 12. Right at the beginning there, those first six verses, you see I was talking about the woman and the dragon. This represents God's people. The promised Messiah will come from, his, from through his people. And this is the story of that, planned from before time began throughout the Old Testament. And then Jesus arrives as well. But later on in verse 9, here's a fact, here's a truth we need to embrace. We need to remind ourselves of. Because quite often, we're in danger even when we know otherwise, we're in danger of thinking hell is Satan's HQ. It's not. That's where he'll end up. But that's not his HQ right now. What happens in verse 9? And the great dragon that I referred to just now, the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. Earth is Satan's HQ. Don't forget that. We've got to think, he's, he's over there beyond his desk in his office in his big mansion and he sends out his armies to go and do what they do and then they come back again and if it's really important he'll make the escapade himself. No. He's here. We mustn't be frightened of that. We just need to be aware of that. We never forget we're in a battle. It's real and it's on this planet. But we can take great encouragement. We need to be aware but not afraid. Because then, verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Hallelujah. He's angry, really angry, but his time is short, and his demise is guaranteed. Because at verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, us, believers, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. You see, he is here, he is real, there is a battle afoot, we are his target. He hates God, so he hates God's people. But we mustn't be afraid because his time is short, but we do need to be aware. How does he attack us? Sometimes stirring up. Uh, temptation and so on, and our desires, our wrongful desires, he stirs them up. They are sin. He didn't give us those desires, but he stirs them up, doesn't he? Desire to gossip and to get angry and to wind people up or to take revenge or lust or whatever it will be. He likes to stir the pot. But there's other things that are a lot more sly and we need to be very, very careful. He tries to trip us up with philosophical falsehoods, things that sound like Christianity, sound like biblical principles, but aren't. He likes to trip us up with scientific assumptions, 
where great declarations are made by the scientific community. I've been reading it some more again this week. Great declarations about how we got here. And actually, they're founded on experiments that have been very biased right from the start. We've got to be very careful. Very careful. That doesn't mean everything in science is wrong. I love science. It's brilliant. Most of it's fine. We've just got to be discerning. He tries to trip us up with spiritual mumbo-jumbo about angels and lights and praying for the dead. And I know a number of people, even the periphery of church, who claim to believe what the Bible says, and they're into stuff that is woefully not in the Bible. Always ask yourself, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Don't just assume, that sounds lovely. That sounds nice. What does the Bible say? So there is a battle afoot. The devil is here and his army. And actually you see earlier in chapter 12, it talks about the stars falling from heaven, the dragon, Satan and his angels that were with him. A third of them fall to the earth, which means God's army is twice his size. Two thirds left. I think it's quite exciting. That's a good, that's a good thing. That's a good bit of maths. So don't be afraid. Be aware, but don't be afraid. But then moving on to chapters 17 and 18, we're kind of, I won't read much from these, but you see there's a, it talks about the great prostitute and the beast, who are these? And it talks about Babylon as well in chapter 18. Just to help you understand, these represent systems. They represent systems of power, of persecution, and of seduction. Babylon is a system of seduction. Referring to the old, the old city of Babylon, which is quite horrendous in some of, it, some of its ways, very seductive. And we see that represented around us in the world today, in real life, and the, on the internet, still real life, but in the digital world as well. You, you look at some certain parts of London, Brighton, and then actually look at some of the nightclubs locally, it's, just, it's everywhere. But it's also in just media generally around us, the way adverts are portrayed, the whole body image issue. It's a seductive thing. We've got to be very careful. But we do see in these chapters, read them through at your leisure, but we do see in these chapters that these horrendous, overwhelming, uncontrollable systems of power, persecution and seduction are destroyed. Dead. Gone. Dealt with. It will happen. And we can take courage in that. They're defeated. 17 verse 14. Chapter 17 verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them for he is lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful that gold medal is in our grasp already it's guaranteed who wins jesus it's all about jesus then skipping through to chapters 19 and 20 and i will dwell on a part of chapter 19 in a minute but in chapter 19 the latter half and chapter 20 we see more of these kind of systems Coming to a demise, we see anti-Christian religion and philosophies being destroyed. Chapter 19, verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Anti-religion and philosophies are destroyed. But what about Satan himself? What happens to him? Skipping through to chapter 21, verse 8. Uh, sorry, no, chapter 20, verse 10. First, here he is. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet were. He's thrown in there with them. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
There's a clue why he's angry right now. Because he knows it's coming. The devil is destroyed. But what's sobering is that it's not just about them. These big systems and the devil and all these things he's influenced that are going to be destroyed and actually tormented forever. We can think of that in an abstract way and go, Phew, it'll be all right. 21 verse 8. It's not just them who get punished forever. Anybody who doesn't love Christ as their saviour gets lumped in the same pot. 21 verse 8. But as for the cowardly, ever been cowardly? The faithless, the detestable, as for murderers. So we can read this list and it was definitely not me. I'm all right. I'm a good British citizen or Dutch. But then it goes on, the sexually immoral. We think, oh, it's not me. I'm all right. I'm not sexually immoral. I just have dodgy thoughts sometimes. Same thing. I thought most of us could put our hand up to something in our past we regret, don't we? Sorcerers, idolaters. Have you ever idolised a person or stuff? A bigger car, bigger house, better job, better wife, better husband, better kids. You, you idolise something, you want something. Idolise a better career, a future, shopping. Whatever it might be. That's idolatry. When you play something in your heart that you want more than Christ. That's idolatry. And us as Christians can still do it. So actually we're starting to find ourselves on this list, aren't we? Oops. And all liars. Who's never lied? I thought Bill was putting his hand up for a minute. (laughs) At least you're being honest. Good man. All liars. Actually, if we're not careful, we could all be on this list. And what happens to them? Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The only way you can be off that list is by being in Christ, placing your faith in him, confessing with your mouth that he is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. It's in his work on the cross that he pays that punishment that we deserve. You're either on that list or you're not on that list. Hallelujah, I'm not. Can you say the same for yourself? It's a biggie. Similar to what David was asking us last week. You're on that list or you're not. But then what about those of us that are believers? We do love Jesus. We do place our trust in him. That we don't get to heaven by being nice. We get to heaven because of him. The conquering king. What about us now? Turn back to Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. It's a chapter we've preached on before, but it's important we remind ourselves. I love this passage. We'll read it and then I'll explain it a bit more. In verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Anyone who's not included on that list of being cast away with the devil, because you're safe in him, that's you. We're invited to his marriage supper. Let me explain a little bit more about the understanding of marriage back then. Now Jesus, when he talked about marriage, 
his audience would have understood it a certain way that we, we don't necessarily know so well, simply because we go through a typical fall in love with a girl, get down and bend a knee, read her a poem, didn't I? Stick the ring on her finger, and at some point you plan a marriage. Some people are engaged for nine or ten years and they're split up. What's the point of that? It's easy to break up when you're engaged in our culture. The culture back then and other cultures now, to be engaged, they use the word to be betrothed. To be betrothed is as good as married. The great wedding feast hasn't happened, but you're as good as married now. And in that concept of engagement, you need a full divorce contract to get out of it. It's treated like marriage. It's, it's as good as. The deal is done, except it isn't. It's now, but not yet. You see in this? And so in then, they'd have a betrothal, and it'd be very formal. And they'd make a promise to each other. And there will be witnesses. There will be a pronouncement of God's blessing over them. And they share a cup of wine that I'll talk about in a minute as well. And it's a sealed contract. Joseph and Mary were betrothed. And when Joseph saw she was pregnant, he sought to divorce her. They weren't married, but they were betrothed. He still had to seek to divorce her if that was going to be his path, which thankfully he didn't choose. Betrothed is as good as. And then what happens? That groom-to-be, he will uh, give, her, give her parents a dowry, you pay a dowry. And quite often it will be in the form of service. Not always money, sometimes it's in the form of service. And we see that in the book of Genesis. Some of the stories there. Then he goes away to prepare a home to come one day and fetch his, fetch his bride and take her back to this home he's prepared. And while he's over there, his, his wife-to-be, she gets herself ready and she adorns herself in beautiful clothes, ready for the big moment. And one day, when the home is ready and the time has come, he comes home to fetch her and they have a massive marriage feast, a great celebration. That was their understanding of marriage back then. Why are we called the bride? We aren't called the bride because our relationship with Jesus reflects marriage. Our understanding of marriage reflects God's relationship with his people. It's the other way around. God instituted marriage as an echo of something greater. He's not just using it as picture language to help us understand his relationship. It's the other way around. Our marriage, on our earthly marriages, are an echo of God's marriage with his people. Big difference. And so, in Christ, we the bride, his people, are chosen before eternity. Boy meets girl falling in love. He chose us. I want to marry you. Not because you're the best, not because you're the least, but because he chose to love you. And then throughout the Old Testament, we see this wedding being announced. God talks about his relationship with his people as being like a wedding talks about them as being an adulterous wife when they go off and, and flirt with other religions, faiths, beliefs. He calls them adulterous. The wedding is announced. And then Jesus comes, our groom. He arrives. And he makes that betrothal I was talking about. And in that, in that culture, they would share a cup of wine. They call it the cup of covenant, the promise cup. And he would drink from it and he'd say, if you want to be mine, will you drink of this cup? And it's like her accepting the ring, her saying, I, I will, in our culture. And she would drink of the wine in the same cup. They'd share the cup. And then he'd say, I'm not going to drink of that cup again until I come back for you for the big wedding feast. And what did Jesus do at the Last Supper? When he shared around the bread and the wine with his, with his disciples and said, do this in remembrance of me, of what I'm about to do on the cross, 
He actually says of that cup, this is my cup of my promise. This is the cup of covenant. And after he's passed it around and they've all drunk it with him, he says, I'm not going to drink of that wine until I come back for you. That was his betrothal. And so, in their understanding of betrothal and how he conveys it to his disciples, we need to receive the same message, that being betrothed means we are as good as married now. Signed, sealed, delivered, never to be broken, even though it's not been fully realised yet. Isn't that amazing? And he's paid a dowry on the cross. He's paid a price on the cross to redeem us, to rescue us. And then he's gone away to prepare us a place. He talks about, I'm going to prepare a home in my father's house at many mansions. And he's preparing that place for us now. Until the time is right when he will return for us, his bride. And in the meantime, what we as the bride are supposed to be doing? Adorning ourselves. Verse 8 It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. He has given us great opportunities of great kingdom deeds to do, and every time we do that, it makes the church more beautiful. Do you see this? It comes alive now, doesn't it? What a difference. And then one day he'll return, and there will be a great feast. And who is our groom? Is he some namby-pamby... He's a bit of an accountant and he's got lots of money because he was born rich and he's come to rescue us and here comes our groom. No, look at this great king who turns up straight after that passage. Verse 11, see what he looks like now. Then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Remember John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. Talk about Jesus. There's his name again. And carrying on. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, here's a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's our groom, conquering king. Who wins? Who's Revelation all about? Jesus. There he is, get excited. And it's not just something we need to close our eyes and sing, one day I'll fly away. It's just, oh, come on. Actually, that gives us confidence for now. Massive confidence for now. Remember Franz Klammer. He's gunning down that hill, thinking, I've got to get, I've got to get, I've got to get, I've got to get. And he's desperate and he's frantic and he's almost falling over. That's not the attitude Jesus wants of us. He wants us to relax and enjoy the journey, knowing that gold medal is in our grasp because he's won it for us. That great, glorious rider on the white horse, that's him. That's our king. It gives us confidence for the journey, doesn't it? Did he tell us to hide in the corner until he comes again? No. What did he tell us to do? To go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, baptise them, heal the sick, cast out demons. That's what he tells us to do. Big difference. Different perspective. And he also says, Matthew 11, verse 12, he says that God's kingdom is taken by force. The word there is violence. You don't just sit around waiting for God's kingdom to keep creeping and getting a bit bigger and you watch it. Watch the landscape change. No, his sovereign plan involves us. His decision is that we are part of that story. 
And our responsibility is to step into that promise knowing he's got our back. We have every confidence in him. He's won. Let's just step out. See, the not yet promises aren't just for then. They're for now. And so when Peter writes to the dispersed Christians in the great, uh, great persecution, he says, have confidence, knowing what's going to come. That gives you confidence for now. And they rested in that, knowing they were going through horrendous persecution, didn't always see the light of day until the day they died necessarily. Some of them lived horrible, horrible situations. Awful persecution was going on back then under Nero and etc. And yet they took great confidence to rest despite what was going on because of those not yet promises. Rather than hunkering down, grinning and bearing it, hoping for the best and hoping it will be over soon. Actually, it gave them confidence to still preach the gospel and the church is still growing today. The not yet promises are for now as well. See, here's one more example before I finish. So we can see high-ranking conspiracies like have been revealed in the past week or two about uh, conservative governments hiding up hundreds of paedophiles in the past. It's awful. It's horrible. But we can get suspicious of governments because of things like that, can't we? We can see things that are going on, find out later on what's been going on behind the scenes. And it makes us more suspicious, more fearful. We've got to be very careful. Even what happened, this horrendous story with MH17, the Malaysian airline, a few days ago. Shot down? It can make us more fearful of the world because of what else is going on at high levels. And watch those conspiracy theories come out because of who was on board. <laughs> so I watch this space. I'm sure they will. We've got to be very careful not to go looking for conspiracy theories or fearing those in leadership, even when we, we know they're evil and we know they're wrong. Because that, that perspective and always looking for conspiracies and never trusting leadership actually feeds a fear of the world. Who are we, God's people, to fear the world? We do it, but we shouldn't. Or we can trust in a conquering king who will strip down any systems of power, persecution and seduction, anti-religious behaviour, philosophies, the devil himself. He's going down. He's on the losing side. He's lost. So why should we fear the world? Does the Bible tell us to dig up conspiracy theories and spread fear by circumstantial evidence and saying, oh, look who started 9-11. It wasn't even Al-Qaeda, it was George Bush. We've got to be so careful. Even as we gossip those things, we're fueling a for-profit industry and forgetting the fact that people died. We'd be very careful. Does the Bible tell us to uncover these things? No. It tells us to pray for those in leadership. Massive difference. It turns it upside down, doesn't it? One is a worldly perspective, the other is a kingdom perspective. The not yet promises give us confidence for now. Just as I finish, let me just give you a little glimpse of how Genesis and Revelation tie the Bible up together. Very, very quick. In Genesis, we see heaven and earth being created. In Revelation, we see a new heaven and a new earth. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 19, he uses the word regeneration. As much as his resurrection body was the same body he died in, Still got the holes, but it could walk through doors and jump about the country faster than any man ever could. You look at the geography and the times of who he sees, that's physically impossible. It's the same body, but it isn't. It's a resurrection body that can do a whole lot of other X-Men stuff. And yet, I believe the new earth will be the same. It's this earth that will be renewed, made new in a whole other way, be a resurrected earth, and we get to enjoy it in a whole new capacity. 
And then in Genesis, you see the sun, moon and stars being made. And yet in Revelation, you see there's no need for a sun because God's now down fully with his people and the light of his glory is enough for us to see by. Isn't that amazing? That's something else entirely, isn't it? And then in Genesis, you see the devil make himself known on this planet. He's already been cast down to his new HQ and he makes himself known. Genesis chapter 3. Revelation, we see him going down. Guaranteed. It's on the cards. It's going to happen. And then in Genesis, we see humanity turn away from God. In in Revelation, we see humanity restored for all who believe in Christ. Not everyone. If you believe in Christ, humanity is restored. Open access to God. He's there with them. We don't need a son because he's here. And then I love this. One more thing I'll leave with you. Chapter 22 of Revelation. In Genesis, we see man banished from the tree of life. Horrendous thought. Banished from the tree of life. Genesis 22, uh, Revelation 22, we now see open access to the tree of life once again on this new earth and something's happened to it. You might not have noticed this before. Look at this. Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. It's a great big city that's described on the new earth. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There's the tree of life. We've got open access to it, and something's happened to it. It's got twelve kinds of fruit. Who's ever heard of a tree bearing more than one kind? Twelve kinds of fruit, but what? How can one tree be on either side of the river? It's multiplied. It's the tree of life, but it isn't. Jesus' body, but it isn't. The earth, but it isn't. Everything's made new in a whole new way, including the tree of life. What a great, glorious picture of what's to come. That's something exciting. And in some ways, I can't wait to get there. But I need to remember, I need to rest in the fact that now is just as important. Because there's other people God wants to sweep up into these purposes. There's other people he wants to save. There's more members of his family who aren't yet in it. And we're a part of that. And we've got a job to do. Just leave you with a quote. Someone once said, all this about revelation and end times, it's not about pie in the sky when we die. It's about steak on the plate while we wait. They're brilliant. It's not pie in the sky when we die. It's steak on the plate while we wait. It's something to get excited about, but it's not just about then, it's about now as well. It's the now and the not yet come colliding together for something great and glorious. Should we stand and sing a song? Yeah? We're going to sing Jesus is Exalted that sings about all of this. Let's praise our glorious King.